Not too long ago, my family was all together, and one of my sons asked me, Dad, how old is mom? And I thought that was just kind of strange because she was sitting there, and I said, so why don't you ask her? And he said, well, you said it's rude to ask a woman how old she is. <laughs> I thought, well, good, he's, he's learning something. <laughs> and it is, and so I'm glad you know, you're thinking about that. Um, I want to ask a question this evening about age. Hopefully it's not rude or inappropriate. I want to ask, how old is the earth? And I want to ask that in part because we've come to a passage in the Bible in which the age of the earth begins to be debated. And our church teaches a position that is often called young earth creationism. And that's not my favorite terminology for it. Uh, but it's a pretty common terminology, and it's in part because it teaches that the earth is at least relatively young. Now, in some ways, the age of the earth is disconnected from some of what we've talked about earlier. Uh, we, we've, we've had to, uh, uh, messages in which we, we talked about whether or not uh, Genesis 1 is talking about the beginning of all time, beginning of creation, how we understand the nature of the days in creation, whether chapter 2 is something different from chapter 1 and how they're connected together. And, and potentially someone might hold some of the positions we've talked about and still think the earth is old. Uh, I think in doing so, they tend to, to undermine some of uh, what we've talked about, and, and certainly often begin to undermine what we saw in Genesis chapter 3, the nature of the fall and the curse. But we really haven't wrestled a whole lot with how old the earth is yet, because that's not come up a whole lot. But it begins to come up now in Genesis chapter 5, because we begin to have a genealogy that begins to talk about Adam, and he was so many years old when he had Seth, and then Seth was so many years old when he had Enosh, and so on as we go through. And so now people begin to wonder, well, does the Bible tell us how old the earth is? And I think the Bible does teach us that the earth is relatively young. And I say relatively young because I think the Bible would say the earth is about six to 10,000 years old. If you say, well, that's young, then we're all in really good shape, right? Because that seems like it's really old in some ways. But that's relatively young when you compare it to some people who say, Adam was created 150,000 years ago, and the earth came into existence billions of years ago. And so I think the Bible would not teach that. The Bible would actually teach that the earth is relatively young. I want to just briefly lay out why I think that's the case. We really spend most of our time wrestling with some of the details of why would I say six to 10,000 years, for example. So why is the earth relatively young? Well, I made this case when we looked at Genesis 1-1, but I think this is describing the, the beginning stages of the creation week. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he goes on in the rest of the six days to form it and fill it. And so that means that Adam was made six days after the beginning of everything. And so however old Adam it is, the world, time, the universe is six days older than Adam. I think the Bible would teach us that Adam is pretty young. Again, at least compared to the kind of time that's out there. We haven't gotten there yet, but I think the description of the flood, the fact that it's a worldwide catastrophic flood, also points to the idea that, that the earth has to be relatively young because otherwise what we see wouldn't make sense without that. 
You do have the genealogies that we'll look at in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, which I think don't allow billions of years to come into play or hundreds of thousands of years to come into play. And the reason most people think the earth is old is not because of what the Bible says, but because of other assumptions that they bring into play. One of the biggest assumptions is what we see today is what has been happening for a long period moving backward. And that's a view that's sometimes called uniformitarianism. It's basically saying the processes that we see happening now, we can just say it was happening, we can extrapolate back to figure out how old things were. And the Bible certainly would tell us that we can't have an absolute uniformity, uniformitarianism, in part, again, because of creation and also because of the flood. Second Peter tells us this, that all things do not just continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Because, for example, God did something catastrophic and that had significant effects on this world. As all of those things typically are used to point to the fact that the earth is not billions of years old, Adam was not made hundreds of thousands of years ago, but that the earth is relatively young. As I said, six to 10,000 years. Now, where do we get those numbers? And that's where we now come to Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. And what I want to, to kind of do in the rest of our time together is to say, I think the earth is relatively young, but we should not be dogmatic about exactly how young it is. The reason I say that is because there are young earth creationists who seem to say, if you don't believe the earth is exactly more or less 6,000 years old, you have compromised. You have undermined the, the Bible. Um, there are well-known organizations, organizations that in many ways I value and appreciate, who I think tend to take a little bit too strong of a stand on this issue. And why do they do that? Well, they say if you allow any time beyond that slightly more than 6,000 years, you've basically allowed the camel's nose into the tent. And if you're familiar with that picture, basically once the camel's nose is in, you can't keep the camel out. And so once you allow more time in, now you've opened up the door to evolution. You've opened up the door to all these other issues. Additionally, they read the genealogy that we find in Genesis 5, the gene genealogy in Genesis 11, and they say, look, all you need to do is add up the numbers. You start with Adam, it tells you how old he was when he had a son, and then you go from there and you can add up all the ages in Genesis 5, you can add up all the ages in Genesis 11, and you can find out how long creation was from the time of Abraham's birth, which is where we end Genesis 11. And we know when Abraham was born, pretty much. There's some dispute, but almost no one says anything more than about 100 years difference. And he was born generally, the date that's given is 2166 BC. And so we go from there, we move backwards, we know when creation was, and that takes creation to slightly more than 6,000 years ago. And they think this is, if, we, if you deny this, that now you've begun to undermine the Bible. But I think there are reasons not to be dogmatic about that. And that's what I want to walk through this evening. But I think there are reasons for us to be able to say, you can still believe the Bible. You can still believe in biblical creationism. You can still be a young earth creationist. 
And you don't have to be exactly dogmatic on that 6,000 year number. And I'll say, if you want to, to look at this in more depth and see additional research, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about this evening uh, was laid out in a journal article by Dr. Mark Snowberger, who uh, is not here with us this evening because he's home recovering. Uh, but in 2013, he wrote an article on this. And so you can look at that in our journal as well. In many ways, this is just an extension of the argument that Dr. John Whitcomb made in the book, The Genesis Flood, which in many ways kind of launched the young earth creationist movement. And so uh, this has a, a pedigree within this movement. First, I want to think a little bit about the argument that says, if you allow any more time in Genesis 5 or Genesis 11, you've now allowed the camel's nose into the tent. And the danger with that argument is it can be what's sometimes called a slippery slope argument. And slippery slope arguments aren't inherently wrong because some slopes really are slippery. What that means is if this happens, you're going to keep going down until you get to here. So their argument is you allow any time in Genesis 5 to 11, and now you're going to go down to evolution. The problem is you can't just assume that's going to happen. You've got to show why that will happen. Essentially, you've got to show the slope really is slippery. And I don't think you can actually make the case, and hopefully by the end of tonight, you'll agree with that, because I think there are different reasons for why you might allow some time in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. Some reasons are driven by desires to match up with scientific evidence. Other reasons are actually, I think, tied in with what we actually see in the text. And that's what we're going to hopefully see this evening. Secondly, as we look at Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, I don't think we would conclude these genealogies are there to tell us how old the earth is. I think the primary reason they're there is to continue what we started to see in Genesis 3.15. What did God promise? The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And what do we see Adam and Eve doing? They believed this promise. And they're trusting in this promise. And what we find in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 is God faithfully continuing this promise. That there is a continuing seed going down until we get to Abraham. And then Abraham says, through your seed, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so really, Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 are there to, to say God's still being faithful to his promise. This is where the seed is, is going. But they do have numbers. And you ask, well, why are the numbers there? And I'd say, well, I don't know because he doesn't tell us. Moses doesn't say, I'm telling you this, these, these numbers here because of this reason. But I think there are reasons for us to, to maybe consider that he's not telling it specifically to give us the age of the earth. There's a few reasons for that. If the goal was to simply say, how old is the earth? There are numbers there we don't need to know. So you're there in Genesis 5. Look at verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son of his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Seth lived 105 years, became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Now, if we want to know how old is the earth, all we need to know is Adam was 130 when he had Seth. 
And Seth was 105 when he had Enosh. And Enosh was, uh, where is it? 90 when he had Kenan. We don't need to know how long they lived afterward. We don't need to know how old they were when they died. And so at least makes us think, maybe it's not here just to tell us how old the earth is. Perhaps there's another reason. And I think probably the reason is more likely because as we move from Genesis 5 to Genesis 11, we begin to notice the age of people is shortening significantly. They're dying earlier and earlier. And the age at which they start having children is earlier and earlier. Which I think probably points to the increasing aspect of the fall. That death is reigning more and more. People are dying earlier and earlier. But then also by the time we get to Abraham and Sarah, there's a little bit of a sense of, but well, Abraham's almost 100, Sarah's 90. How could God possibly give them offspring? But in this, we just saw, how old was Adam when he had Seth? 130. How old was Seth when he had Enosh? 105. And so in a sense, if this is when people were having children, we think, well, God's got plenty of time to give Adam a seed. But Genesis 11 is in part telling us, well, things have changed. It's not quite the same way as it was. And so we're now seeing a shortening of life and a shortening of the age in which people are having children. Additionally, there are some textual issues that come into play here. And I want to, to begin by assuring you that when I'm talking about any of these things, None of these things undermine in any way the fact that we have God's inspired inerrant word. I don't want in any way to undermine your confidence in that. But we don't actually have the pages that Moses wrote on. We don't have the the things that Paul wrote on. We have copies. And in the Old Testament, there's two broad ways that people, or two broad kind of groups of, of copies that people have looked to to try to understand what did Moses originally write. And some is Hebrew, and the other is Greek. It's called the the Septuagint or the Septuagint. And I don't know if if one is the right pronunciation or pronunciation, right? Uh, But the Septuagint and the Hebrew text. And in these passages, one of the differences between those two is in the actual ages given. In Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, some of the numbers are different. And in many ways, that's not uncommon, especially in the Old Testament, to see numbers being a little different. Just to give you a a sense of this, in in the Hebrew text, which is what we we generally see reflected in our English translations, uh, the time between creation and the flood was about 1,656 years. The time between the flood and when Abraham was born is 292 years. And so that puts creation at 4144 BC, puts the flood at 2485. In the Greek version, there is 2242 years between creation and the flood, and then a thousand years, 1072 years between the flood and Abraham. And that puts the flood at 3238 and creation at 5480. So about 1300 years earlier. And so which of those are right? I, I, I don't know that we can say definitively. People have different arguments about it. 
But there's at least people who are saying there's a, a thousand years or so, even in just the texts that we have. And so it's possible that maybe it's not quite that 6,000 years. Additionally, though, there is a, a certain name given to us in Luke chapter three. I want you to turn there so you can see this. Go to Luke chapter three. And verse 36. In Luke 3, Luke is giving the genealogy from Jesus to Adam. And we'll start in verse 35, actually. The very last name there, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Ephraxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech. All right, so we have Shelah, Canaan, Ephraxed. Go to Genesis 11. And start in verse 11. Aparkshad lived 35 years, became the father of Shelah. Now in Luke, we have Canaan between those two. In Genesis 11, he's not listed. What's going on here? And there's basically three possibilities. One possibility is Luke didn't actually include him. And that's maybe one of the people who were copying the New Testament added that in. The second is Moses actually did include him in Genesis 11, but somehow at some point in time, a copyist dropped him out. And he is found in most of the Greek versions. He's not found in any of the Hebrew versions. The third option is that Moses didn't include him and was right not to include him and originally did not include him. And Luke did include him and was right to include him and originally did include him and therefore was inspired. So one option would say, actually Canaan was meant to be in Genesis 11. And therefore we have a little bit more of, of a number gap that comes into play and maybe even would cause us to look to the numbers of the Septuagint in this text that would give us that more, the more years. Another option would be to say there are actually gaps in these genealogies, that Moses wasn't trying to tell us every single person, and that potentially you had some people who weren't meant to be included. And you say, well, is that possible? Can you have this kind of language of a parks that lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah, if he actually was the father instead of Canaan? And the answer in part is, yes, the Bible does use that language in other places. I'm going to ask you to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew says that Joram begat Uzziah. If you look in the Old Testament, you find that Uzziah is actually uh, the great-great-grandson of Joram. And in Matthew 1, Matthew, I think, seems to be intentionally leaving out certain names because he's actually trying to, to say there's 14 generations from Adam to Abraham and 14 to Abraham and David and 14 and so on. So he's laying out um, 
specific periods and trying to make a symmetry to them. So we do know that the Bible sometimes uses this kind of language in saying not the father of, but ancestor to. And so that is a legitimate way that, that the Bible can talk about people like this. Additionally, I'm not going to have you turn there if you want to look this up. Exodus 6 seems to leave out a generation in part because of the, the numbers that are given there. And in Ezra 7, 1 to 5, we have a list of people given. The same list is given in 1 Chronicles 6, 3 to 14. Uh, there are 16 names in Ezra, but there are 22 in 1 Chronicles. And so it seems that potentially there was six people added in within this genealogy. So you do have the Bible sometimes saying so-and-so was not necessarily the direct father, but grandfather, great-grandfather, and so on as we go through. Additionally, I think there's some things even within the passage that might cause us to, to stop and think through whether or not this is meant to be a pure timeline for us. And I'm just going to mention a couple. We're there in Genesis 11. Look at verse 26. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, if we are going along saying this is telling us they lived so on and then they had these people, I think we might conclude, well, these were triplets because he had them all when he's 70. But actually, we have a pretty good indication that's not what's being said because look down at verse 32. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haram. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country. So after Terah dies, Abram begins to go. And look at verse four of chapter 12. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haram. So if he's 75 and Terah died at 205, how old was Terah, right? You don't have to answer this. This isn't a math class. I'm going to tell you the answer is 130, right? which isn't 70. And that makes us think that when it says Terah was 70, it may not be saying this is how old he was when he had Abraham. It might simply be saying this is how old he was when he started having children. And Abraham's just listed because he's the most significant. But it does at least begin to cause us to wonder, is this giving us a strict chronology? Another potential tension we have. If it is a strict chronology, I mentioned there's about 292 years from the flood to when Abraham was born. Uh, that means, actually, if the numbers are all just meant to say this is exactly what happens, uh, Shem is actually alive when Abraham is born. And in fact... Shem actually lives 110 years into Isaac's life. And he lives 50 years into Jacob's life. And the reason that might cause us to wonder a little bit is because Joshua, verse 24, uh, chapter 24 and verse 2 tells us that Abraham's father, Terah, and his fathers worshipped idols. So you begin to wonder, well, if Noah is alive until Terah's born and Shem's alive until he's born, how are they worshipping idols? How is, how is God completely forgotten, even within their lifetime? Additionally, if the numbers are right, the Tower of Babel would be about 27 years before Abraham enters the Promised Land. And you get to the Promised Land, and, and what's one of the things you actually find 
in the story of Abraham is the stories about Sodom and Gomorrah. So wicked that God actually destroys them with fire. And it seems unlikely that they would have actually been set up before the Tower of Babel because everyone was all together until that point in time. And then they spread out throughout the world. And God gave the land of Canaan over 400 years to store up their wickedness before he destroyed them. So it seems like it's a pretty short window if, if this is actually the timeline that's coming into play here. And so all of those, I think, might cause us to, to say, maybe there's a little bit more time between the flood and when Abraham's born. And in fact, we, we might expect that to be the case in light of what we see in the narrative. And so I did mention, for example, the Septuagint has a thousand years. It's a lot more time than just a little under 300. The kind of time that actually would allow a little bit more opportunity for people to spread from the Tower of Babel and then begin to see these things happen. So all this to say, I, I think there are reasons from the Bible that would make us say, maybe there is possible gaps. Maybe sometimes Moses isn't saying this person actually was the father of this person. Now, how much time can you fit in, in that kind of a category? And the answer is not a whole lot. If you put a thousand years between every single person, at most you get like 20,000 years. You're nowhere close to 150. You're certainly not close to billions of years. So I don't think we'd say, hey, six to 10,000, that's a compromise once you get, once you go to seven. You gotta be at six if you're really gonna be faithful. And I think there are biblical reasons why that's the case. So does the age of the earth matter? I think the answer is yes, it does matter. There are some views about the age of the earth that undermine what the Bible says. You can't fit millions of years in this timeline. You can't even really fit hundreds of thousands of years in the way that Genesis narrative is set up. So I think there are some views that begin to undermine the clarity and inerrancy of scripture. And, and we've talked about this before, but, but most old earth views also begin to undermine the fact that Adam's sin is what brought death into this world. Because you didn't have death for a long time before Adam's sin in most views of an old earth. And does it matter how we determine the age of the earth? I think the answer again is yes. But we don't say, well, whatever experts tell us or whatever, you know, scientists say, whatever the consensus of, of scientists is. We're, we're going to the Bible and we're trying to say, well, what does the Bible indicate? Does the Bible give us answers? Is the Bible intended to give us an exact date? And I would say, I don't think the Bible is intended to give us an exact date, but certainly it gives us a relative date. So can we be dogmatic about 6,000 years? I think the answer has to be no. That even if you don't agree, and, and there, are, there are other alternative explanations to the things I've brought up. And people give those alternative explanations to say, I think it still is giving us a literal timeline. And it's 6,000 years. And I'd say, I don't, I don't agree, but I think that's fine. And what needs to happen is they need to say that in the reverse to people who say it's maybe 10,000 years. That you, you can't have someone stand up and say, unless you say 6,000, you're a compromiser. Because we're all trying to look at what scripture says. And we need to be as strong and firm and clear as scripture is, but no stronger 
They cannot draw lines that the Bible doesn't draw. And so we need to make sure that we are not wrongly attacking those who are actually not undermining and attacking what the scripture says. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can seek to read it, to understand it. We pray that you would give us humility, give us conviction. Lord, help us to to have wisdom in being able to discern how to approach different topics, different issues, to do so with a radical commitment to your word, but never to go beyond it. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.